thank you for listening to this week's social action briefing that we are recording on the night of Wednesday, February 8th. I am Craig Milch. I am joined by Professor Jessica Mitchell. Hello, Jess. Hey, Craig. I was just thrown off because I feel like I said my name in the past tense. Like I just said Craig Milched. Like <laughs> my name is a past tense verb. But anyway, we'll move on from that. Um, <laughs> so we're back from a, a week off sort of for us. Um, Martina is not with us this week. She's uh, off researching for her next interview in her series of uh, Black History Month interviews. So uh, listeners can look forward to her return and uh, we have a return guest next week as well. Um, We'll break that news right now. It'll have to be a mystery for everybody. Um, But yeah, last night was the State of the Union. Um, I did not get to watch, but I later uh, went through the Twitter timeline, which... uh, you know, it was almost like I was there at the time, the next day. But um, I, I consumed it that way, and I kind of was, and uh, I did listen to a podcast where it was talked about. So I kind of have an idea of some of the main things that happened. Um, Jess, I know you mentioned you couldn't watch all of the rebuttal, but did you watch all of the State of the Union? I did watch all of the State of the Union, but I just could not get myself to continue watching the rebuttal because I was too disgusted. So I shut it off and went to bed. She's the, uh, such a talented young orator, and then you know the, this new Republican Party, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the governor of Arkansas. I think it's hilarious. Like I, I get wanting like a new generation to lead, and I am very much the kind of person who believes in institutional knowledge. Like, I don't think that all, you know, boomers or people who've been around for a while need to be kicked out of government at the same time because somebody needs to know where the copy paper is. But I think it's funny coming from her, given her relation to politics her entire life, like, are you really a new generation to lead or are you just like a mini version of the last generation? Like, you've had a step up in this game your whole life. Like, why are you the one asking for new leadership when you really are just the spawn of the old leadership? Yeah, and she would literally support Donald Trump again. Yeah, too. (laughs) Someone who's already led and is physically also old. That too. (laughs) And look, like, I am not in, like... I know there's a lot of people who are like, just get rid of like everybody over a certain age in politics and there should be a mandatory retirement age. Like, I'm not a fan of that. I don't think that's good policy. Like, I'm going to be old one day and still, you know, active. And like, I don't want to just be unceremoniously kicked out. I think there needs to be like an expectation that people are going to continue to be able to lead and not be assholes or bigoted or continue to hold on to like, their old views but like I just it's just like so crazy to me when people are like oh just like kick them out kick them out kick them out like because they're old like that's not a good reason (laughs) yeah (laughs) you cannot like someone's views you cannot like someone's actions you know past or current but like simply age is not a reason to tell people to like no longer participate (laughs) yeah I mean Diane Feinstein is clearly too old to be a senator and i mean she hasn't said if she's gonna run again but there's already you know katie porter is announced and uh adam schiff has announced that they're running for her seat so i mean it'd be kind of nuts for her to run again when she's really not all there at this point but you know there's a mechanism for getting people who are actually too old to function out and one of them is elections so yeah i think that diane feinstein did say she wasn't gonna run oh did she okay yeah i I think the problem is is like people actually want her to leave and i don't think that she's committed to retiring early no yeah okay um i mean that makes sense yeah i guess i just missed it well what did you uh Speaking of uh, old people still in their roles, what did you think of the State of the Union? 
<laughs> I mean, I really, I'm like, this is where like my issues lie with the president is that it was just like really kind of unmemorable. And like, I, I don't, you know, he's like placating Republicans with the, like, we need oil for like more time, but like also like trying to commit to like getting rid of it. And it's like, just take like a definitive stand on this that like, you know, we can do more, we can do more faster. Like we've done things, you know, quickly in the past, like you're just kind of like putting it off mm-hmm. in order to like placate business and like old white Republicans that aren't going to vote for you anyway. So like enough is enough. Um, but it just, I, it's like, just sort of like unmemorable, like to say something, like do something like unexpected, like you don't need to be the president of moderate opinions or mediocrity. Yeah. Like, you can't, like, I don't, I don't know. I just like, don't understand. But I also, I also just think that like, it did the one part of it that like did stand out to me was like calling out Republicans for like wanting to get rid of social security and Medicare and like, yeah. Get- him to the point of disagreeing with him so that he could be like yeah. oh, so like we're not going to move forward with this good moving on like th- yeah. I don't understand like why they also need to be like these brash disgusting human beings when you're supposed to be a role <laughs> and like a leader and a legislator and a representative and you're acting like school children um when what he said wasn't incorrect it just you don't want people knowing about it <laughs> yeah for for those listening who may not have uh seen the coverage or watched it or whatever what happened was and this this was described so i listened the, the podcast that i listened to on the way home from work today it was called hacks on tap and it's like david axelrod and robert gibbs who were like communications uh people for obama and then mike murphy who's the like Republican hack and he, the Republican was the one who described it as uh, walking them all into a buzzsaw because uh, Biden was like, yeah, some Republicans and not all of them want to. And the way he timed it, it was actually that the, not all of them was when people were jeering him, but he's basically saying that some of them and not all of them have proposed uh, sunsets to uh, social security and Medicare. Which is demonstrably true. Last April, I think it was, we had a podcast episode where we talked about Rick Scott's plan to subset sunset every uh, piece of legislation after five years and have a revote. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, and then and yeah, exactly like you said, they were booing because they want people to know about it. And then, uh, and you know, in the moment, Biden sort of responded to them and. Uh, Someone on Twitter was saying that it was like the first like politically significant thing to happen during a State of the Union in a very long time. Um, I mean, uh, State of the Union is a pre-prepared speech that like most everybody in that room has seen a copy of already and like nothing surprising usually comes out of it. And yeah, I mean, I would agree that it's probably with the exception of I think I think Obama was the first president to both use the word gay and trans in a state of the union address. Like this is the most surprising thing to happen during a state of the union since like that happened. I think Biden might've been the first to say trans. I like have a, at his, um, okay. when it wasn't, when it was the joint, whatever they call it, when it's not the actual state of the union. Yeah. So the joint first session, the first spring, like the, the spring that a president takes office it's not a state of the union. It's like a joint speech to Congress. So, okay. Maybe it was Biden. Yeah. During the joint session. Yeah. And then, um, and, uh, Oh, and someone else kind of made the distinction with, uh, Obama and Biden where Obama was sort of talking to the American people with Congress there. And Biden was more talking to Congress with the American people watching which I thought was an interesting distinction. And I mean, to have a, like, there are people even that like vote for Joe Biden that really think he's like, not all there, like in a Dianne Feinstein kind of way. And like, that was a, you know, that was like a spur of the moment 
like interaction and like a very and a potentially very politically meaningful one. Um, although I did see it pointed out by uh, Brian Boitler that the plans on the debt ceiling, because that was one of the, you know, sort of one of the ostensive missions of this State of the Union is to kind of clue everybody into what's going on with the, the debt ceiling hostage situation, everything. And at this point, um, what Boiler was saying is that it's the Republican congressman like Kevin McCarthy and, and, and his, you know, uh, caucus, their plan is to try to get cuts to like discretionary spending. Um, but I mean, it's the, the overall idea is there. And I mean, it's been the, the plan, you know, the, the goal to cut entitlements like social security, Medicare, but, but yeah, it's been the Republican party's goal for decades at this point. So it's like, it's what they're always trying to do. It's never, never, it hasn't been wrong that that's their aim, you know, for quite a while. No, um, they just it, don't want yeah. people to know about it is the problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, so hopefully Biden helps uh, people know. And then I saw another thing, um, when AOC was interviewed after the State of the Union, um, she was pleasantly surprised, and I, it was reported that Jamal Bowman who, uh, went to Bernie Sanders and asked if he wrote Biden's speech, indicating mm-hmm. that he was pleased. Um, when it came to police reform, um, it, you know, a lot of the focus was on you know reforms and what families of the victims of police violence go through. Um, AOC pointed out that not only was, you know, there wasn't this ham-handed, you know, there wasn't like a, but we need to defund, or we need to fund the police. There wasn't the but, and it wasn't really focused on funding at all. So apparently the progressives were very pleased with that, um, which was nice to hear. And, uh, I think that part of it probably just like went out of my head because any reform getting through a Republican house is just so unrealistic at this point that yeah. like it's nice to talk about it and it does need to be addressed. And like, I do gen- genuinely wish that something would happen. Um, but the likelihood of it happening is just so unrealistic. Yeah. Uh, like, I don't even think it really registered in my head. <laughs> Well, yeah, sad. it's yeah. pathetic. Like, it, I mean, it, it both should have, but also like, I just don't, don't have any faith that it will. I don't, and again, I didn't watch it live, so I don't know if I would have noticed, but the reason why it resonated with me when I was looking at the coverage was like, that was the most annoying part of Biden's joint session address was yeah. when he, you know, was like, oh, we got to fund the police, fund the police. So I'm glad you do that this time. I would love to see like some actual discussion on funding, like things that are important, like free school lunch and mental health care and insurance and health care and school social workers for kids and <laughs> yeah. And I think um, I think they did. I think there you know was there was talk of you know resourcing the communities, although yeah, I'm not. I'm not enti- I think that was addressed in some respect, yeah. but uh, obviously but I want that to be like a real discussion on like a day-to-day basis of like, yeah, what are we going to do to actually help people instead of harm people? Yeah. Um, I mean, poverty reduction in general is a great solution to this ill, the ill of, of uh, well, at least of crime in the first place and the, the, about, you know, the feeling when people feel like we need police, it's obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but, or, you know, not even entirely, but, you know, it's somewhat related to the fact of crime and uh, reducing crime is obviously not uh, achieved by building up the police and funding the police and emphasizing only the police, so. No, not even a little bit, not even like a teeny tiny bit. It just even at all. We need to do real things, not fake things. It kind of reminded me of the poem, I think in 10 Things I Hate About You. 
Do you remember that? (laughs) How it kind of ends that way? Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. God, I haven't thought about that movie. Tell you how long. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I feel if I knew the dates better on our next topic, I think I could segue because some of this is about voting rights. And uh, I think one of the precedent cases probably happened around the time that that movie came out. But anyway, um, apparent, so according to uh, Rick Hassan in Slate, um, the Supreme Court's impending decision in Moore versus Harper, which we've talked about on this podcast, um, about the independent state legislature theory, um, which is expected by late June, it could soon be rendered moot by an order that the North Carolina Supreme Court uh, issued on Friday to rehear the underlying case. So what happened here um, North Carolina maps were redrawn to be a partisan gerrymander, um, 10 to 3 Republican versus Democrat in like a 50-50 state, um, or, you know, close to 50-50 state, competitive state, um, after the previous maps were a racial gerrymander um, that were, you know, with the, the uh, famous surgical precision to be a, a racial gerrymander. Um, they were deemed in, in violation of the North Carolina Constitution. Um, by, well, the, so the, the racial one was deemed unconstitutional, and then the partisan uh, gerrymander was deemed unconstitutional by, re- more recently by the state Supreme Court with the Democratic majority. Um, and the, now there's a Republican majority, and they want to rehear the case to, to just overdo that or overturn that recent decision. Um, Hassan remarks that it, the, the decision to seek rehearing is a curious one and indicates some doubts on the part of Republicans that the Supreme Court's decision in Moore versus Harper would be a favorable one. Um, so there kind of goes over the different considerations in terms of the side that you know wants to institute the independence of the legislature theory and and inside that, you know, acknowledges that it's crazy and uh, we shouldn't have it. So, um, you know, a, a bad decision um, in North Carolina rejecting a partisan gerrymander claim under the state constitution would only affect that state. In contrast, an embrace of the independent state legislature theory by the U.S. Supreme Court would have negative effects around the country. So that's sort of an argument that, you know, it would be the lesser of two evils. Uh, if they, you know, um, re, if they went back to rehear this and, you know, allowed the, the, the uh, claim. Um, so, and then, uh, and the other thing being that the independent state legislature theory is bound to come up, um, you know, in, uh, to the Supreme Court one at one point or another, and it's better to do it with this case that has weak arguments. It's better, you know, to decide it when uh, also when there isn't a presidential election at stake, you know, when it's just um, potential, you know, elections in the future, um, I mean, which is still bad, but, you know, it's not like it, it wouldn't, you know, if it's during a presidential election and, and legislatures are trying to declare the loser, the winner, you know, mm-hmm. much much closer to a constitutional crisis in, in that uh, in that scenario. So um, creeping closer to a constitutional crisis every day. Like I cannot imagine what's going to happen with this next election. And to be honest with you, I almost think it's going to be worse if Trump loses the primary versus losing the general election. Why? Because I, because like it's I don't. As crazy as this sounds, like it's just going to give him more time to like burn the place down. (laughs) I just, I don't think like he's not going to accept losing anything. Um, But I think it'll be worse if he tries to run as a third party candidate. Um, And I think he will have more time to like try to both discredit, but also just like blow up this country, not in the like physical sense, but in the, not in like the literal sense, but in like the political sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I, I like, I'm imagining that scenario 
like, okay, DeSantis beats Trump in the primary and Trump like claims it was stolen. And, you know, when he tries to burn it all down, I see the it all just being the Republican party at that point. And if he runs as a, like, if it's Trump, DeSantis and Biden, like Biden walks to victory in that situation. Like they're, you know, Mm, I mean, maybe, but I don't know. I mean, I don't, the primary election constituency is very different from a general election in both political parties. Um, You always have the more extreme people voting in a primary than you do in a general. And I, I mean, I don't, honestly, I don't think that Trump is going to lose the primary. I just think it would be worse if he did. I would, I mean, I guess whether he wins or loses, I just really look forward to the point when they're attacking each other. That'll be really, like it kind of started a little bit with uh, there was like uh, Trump was like re-truthing or, or, or something. I think it was on, on truth social. But it was like, uh, you know, the, the whole like Ron DeSantis was drinking when he was a high school teacher. He was like drinking with his students hmm. and uh, Trump was like uh, on on truth social, like truthing about it and re truthing and, and whatever. And then uh, then DeSantis backers were just talking about how much Trump how many times Trump hung out with Jeffrey Epstein and just like, you know, let them fight. <laughs> you love to see it. <laughs> um, so another, speaking of the health of our democracy and things you love to see, um, Spencer Mestel in Boltzmag uh, talked about an initiative, um, a bill that was recently introduced in New Hampshire's House of Representatives that creates a voter-owned certificate program, which is also known as uh, democracy vouchers, intended to encourage small donations, uh, disempower wealthy donors, and limit the influence of out-of-state contributors. Um, the program would mail every eligible voter four $25 vouchers during each two-year election cycle. Recipients could then donate any or all of those vouchers to candidates who have opted into the system and to, that agreed to abide by certain. Um, at the beginning, the only eligible races uh, would be for governor and executive council, which is the five member body that has uh, veto power over pardons, gubernatorial nominations and contracts with a value greater than 10,000. I don't know how many states have that type of thing, but that's just happens. It's just governor and them that are eligible for this in the beginning. Um, it would be voluntary for candidates and the gubernatorial candidates would become eligible uh, only after collecting 2,500 small dollar donations and 500 uh, for the executive council candidates. Those who qualified could get up to $420,000 in vouchers for the governor's race, 84,000 for executive council, and they'd also be eligible for a million dollar grant for a contested general election, 60,000 for executive counselors, um, in addition to any money raised with voter vouchers. And in exchange, candidates would have to heed certain restrictions like a cap on personal donations to the campaign, a limit of no more than 10% of out-of-state contributions, and a ban on soliciting independent expenditures. Now, this was... Uh, implemented by Seattle, the city of Seattle in 2017, um, and went pretty well. Um, it's shown to have diversified and grown the pool of people giving money to political campaigns and made city races more competitive in the process. Um, the program applies to a wide swath of municipal elections and has been enormously popular. Um, the current mayor, the city attorney, and seven of the nine city councilors used the program in their last election. The number of donors per race has gone up by 350%, and candidates reported hundreds of thousands more in donations of under 200 bucks 
reducing their reliance on a small batch of wealthy donors, according to a study of Seattle uh, conducted by Alan Griffith, who is a scholar at the University of Washington. Um, and then uh, this, so the same study also found an 86% increase in the number of candidates and a large decrease in incumbent electoral success, suggesting that races have become more competitive. Anecdotal evidence suggests that the program is attracting new kinds of candidates as well. Um, an example given is uh, Teresa Mosqueda and a labor organizer who launched her 2017 campaign for city council while working full-time, renting a one-bedroom apartment, and still paying off student loans. Um, and she said that the program's existence pushed her to run. So uh, compared to traditional cash donors of the kind who regularly participate in elections, the voucher users were also more likely to be young and lower-income contributors, according to a 2020 study conducted by researchers at Stony Brook and Georgetown University. Um, in late 2022, uh, something similar passed in Oakland, hasn't been implemented yet. Um, Minnesota Democrats have proposed creating uh, democracy vouchers as a part of a broad voting rights package they introduced this year, shortly after taking control of the state government. Um, it is an uphill battle to be passed in New Hampshire um, that has a Republican governor and Republicans control both chambers of the state legislature even though Democratic candidates made major gains in and nearly tied the state house in November. Um, and, and a side note, I think it became official today that Democrats took the state house in uh, Pennsylvania by like a one seat margin. Not um, the majorities we got. Yeah. Um, and very notable, you know, to happen um, in the first midterm after a new president. Um, back to the democracy vouchers, uh, the, so the outlook for Minnesota, um, there is democratic control of the governor in both chambers, um, but there is a chance that the current elected officials may not want to rattle the status quo. So no certainty there that it'll get passed. And, um, the two examples where it has passed in Seattle and Oakland, those were ballot initiatives, not, uh, it, you know, passed by legislatures. So, we will see. What do you uh, what do you think about uh, democracy vouchers uh, in general? I mean, I think that's a really interesting prospect because one of the reasons why I'm like not always so in favor of this like public financing of campaigns is that in a lot of other places it's actually shown to really only benefit the incumbents. Mm. Um, yeah, there's somebody on Long Island who actually refers to it as the incumbent reelection fund instead of public financing of campaigns. <laughs> Um, because it just, it, the, the issue is, is that once you're in office, you have access to things that people who are not in elected office have access to. Like you're more likely to get called by reporters to make comments. You have, you know, free access to media in a way that like a candidate doesn't. So that combined with the fact that you have to put less effort into fundraising because you are an incumbent just usually leads to more time to do actual electioneering, um, which is like great for the incumbents it's benefiting, but it's not always a great benefit to people who are trying to challenge the status quo. So it, to me, it's just interesting that this has actually led to other people running, but it also seems to be a much simpler system Okay. Like the the public financing that exists in certain places right now, like New York City um, and Connecticut, I'm just thinking of as two places, are really complex and the reporting requirements are astronomical, which in and of itself can be a deterrent to people who do want to run for office but don't want to break the law. Yeah. And get in trouble that way. So I mean, reminiscent of like means testing, you know, just like paperwork, just make like just diluting the uh, equalizing power of a you know reform type of initiative. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me that that is what has happened. But yeah. that's great. Yeah. Very promising. It'd be nice to see it happen. Uh, by legislatures passing it 
rather than uh, ballot initiatives just to see it. I mean, not that one way is better than the other, just to see it happen in another way and, and leave it to have like, you know, indicate there's potential for it to happen, you know, more than it has or more yeah, than it would if it was only ballot initiatives. The other thing that's really important too is just that ballot initiatives are great. And like, I don't want to discourage the notion of them, but because it's a ballot initiative and people are voting on it in the legislature and regulatory bodies may not necessarily agree with it, that can oftentimes lead the institution who is supposed to be implementing the ballot initiative to drag their feet. And I'm just thinking as like an example in 2014, the people of the state of New York voted to amend the constitution of the state of New York for an independent redistricting body. But a lot of that hinged on the governor implementing the independent redistricting body, which Cuomo dragged his feet on and led to being really ineffective and led to the situation that we're in right now, where we ended up with these maps that were drawn by a special master instead of like maps that were legitimately drawn by the independent redistricting committee that the people voted for. So sometimes it is actually better to get a legislature to do it because it means more investment and like more control, like they will, like if you're having the legislature pass it, like the theory is that like they'll agree with it and are going to implement it properly. Whereas if the ballot initiative does it and they don't agree with it, it could just lead to problems of implementation. So. Yeah. I'm thinking of another one, uh, felony disenfranchisement in, uh, in Florida. They were people that, uh, you know, had felonies on their record were given the right to vote. And then it was implemented in a way that you had to pay off all of your fines and fees and everything like that. And as we've mentioned numerous times on this podcast, they made it very difficult to even find if or how much money you actually owed to be able to pay off and then vote. So just make it. And then you have Ron DeSantis sending the cops after people who, uh, who mistakenly voted. Um, and it was after the state told them it was okay. So that's a, that is, uh, something aside from, uh, cruelty and mannerisms, uh, something that DeSantis is following Trump's footsteps on just giving great examples of the things being taken to an extreme to prove a point of what bad shit can happen. You know what? It's really funny too because there is no current research available to indicate that on a whole, people with felony convictions fall into one political party or the other. So it's really interesting to me that instead of putting in the work to persuade people with felony convictions on their record to vote for him as the Republican nominee for governor, that he just found it simpler and easier to disenfranchise them because it probably did take less time than it would have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're just Republicans are afraid of any new constituents constituency being able to vote. Uh, and yeah. there, yeah, there, there's no, you know, we don't know uh, which way the votes are going to go. Um, but uh you know, I guess they figure, hey, they we've deprived them of the right to vote for a reason. There must be a good reason that we don't want them to vote. So let's just, you know, just prevent it. Like it's in the DNA of the of Republicans to just try to limit the vote without really thinking too deeply about what they're doing. Um, and uh, I don't know, I feel like there's a way to relate this next topic, but I guess my, my segue uh, neurons aren't firing too, too uh, strongly tonight. But uh, there is a uh, abortion pill ban uh, potentially here. Um, Susan Rincunis in Jezebel wrote about uh, the fact that there's a Trump appointed judge um, that could revoke the FDA approval of a common abortion drug as soon as this Friday, February 10th, uh, even in blue states where abortion is still legal. 
they uh, and apparently seven abortion providers have confirmed to Jezebel that if the judge bans mifepristone, the first of the two drugs involved in the FDA approved protocol for medication abortion, uh, they are prepared to prescribe misoprostol only abortions as a workaround. Um, the article does note that people will still be able to order both pills via international services like Aid Access. A misoprostol only regimen is not uh, FDA approved for abortion and would therefore be an off label use of the drug, um, but it's extremely well studied and supported by the World Health Organization. Um, on, on Monday, researchers published the first study to examine misoprostol abortions in the United States and found the drug was 88% effective at ending a pregnancy. Uh, studies in other countries have found efficacy rates between 95 and 99% on par with results for the two-drug combo. Uh, misoprostol itself is an ulcer drug that's prescribed off-label to prep for IUD insertions, induce labor, and prevent postpartum hemorrhages and more. Um, the FDA-approved regimen through 10 weeks of pregnancy is to take one mifepristone, which blocks the hormone necessary for the pregnancy to develop, then wait 24 to 48 hours before taking four misoprostol, which causes uterine contractions that expel the pregnancy, like a miscarriage. Um, since misoprostol is the drug that causes contractions, uh, quote, it can be a bit more painful of a process uh, be a bit more of a painful process to take it alone instead of the FDA protocol of mifepristone. It's abbreviated in this part of the article, but mifep- I don't even know how I would pronounce it, the abbreviations. But uh, yeah, instead of the FDA protocol of mifepristone plus misoprostol, because a higher dose is involved, according to Christy Pitney, who is a certified nurse midwife of forward midwifery and co-founder of the Abortion Freedom Fund. She said people may experience more diarrhea, nausea, and mild fever. So exactly what we need when people are seeking abortions to make them sicker and make it more difficult. Um, It's actually midwifery, not midwife. Just so you know. <laughs> well, is the person is the position called a midwife or it's still a midwife? Midwife. Okay, but it's midwife and midwifery. I, well, that's the English language. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. no good <laughs> explanation of why any of this, you know, is pronounced the way that it is. But um Tough yeah. pronunciation section for me in that uh in that segment. Yeah. Uh, you know what, to be completely honest with you, I'm not even hundred percent positive how to pronounce the drugs. Um yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure um, if I'm ever pronouncing it right. I just go for it and see what happens. Yeah. But as a non-prescriber of medication, I don't think it really matters if I know how to pronounce them or not because I'm never <laughs> prescribed to anybody. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's like scary times that we're living in. It's really, I just, I, I don't understand how people have the audacity to tell other people that they need to become a parent it just doesn't really make any sense to me yeah um yeah republicans just hate abortion so i mean this this move is not even going to prevent medication abortions it's just going to make them uh more unpleasant maybe um, but hopefully not too much less effective. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, it's, it's uh, like none of this is logical. This is all just let's make people's lives more difficult. Let's make sure that anybody who, you know, has a uterus is forced into pregnancy. It's unnatural to not want a child. Yeah. Um, although... I am very grateful to have a doctor right now who does not believe that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And when it comes to the audacity of people, um, I think we have to really just be in the shocked but not surprised zone at this point when people like George Santos exist, Mm -hmm. um, who 
before we get into what's on the outline here, apparently, and I, I saw clips of it, like he was, he was, uh, he like got there, I presumably early to the State of the Union because he was like by the aisle trying to shake the president's hand and everyone that was walking in. And uh, he got into it with Mitt Romney, who I think told him he was like a disgrace like three times, according to like someone who was like watching and trying to read lips and told him he didn't belong there. And and then when he got when uh, Romney was interviewed after he. Uh, he was, you know, talking about how he should hopefully be removed because the ethics and like he shouldn't have been you know where he was. He should have just been like quietly sitting in the back because he was under all these ethics investigations. And then, of course, George, when interviewed, was like, I've been told to sit in the back a lot of times in my life by people with more privilege than me, which, of course, you know, just that's a valid thing for many people to say. And maybe even in some context, this guy, but I mean, he's ridiculous. Um, And now he's uh, some of what he's done. Has found some commonality with our old friend Lee Zeldin. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, in the fall of 2020, uh, then Representative Lee Zeldin's campaign submitted a report to federal regulators with 21 payments on a single day of exactly $199.99 each. Um, and uh, they all went to anonymous recipients and um, I don't know, you know, if, if you're not looking at the outline already, just don't look, but if you had to guess, what do you think is the dollar amount above which campaigns are required to keep receipts? Actually, you probably just know this anyway, but it's $200. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's $200, but you, I'm sorry. I thought you said $99, so I got really confused for a second. Oh well, yeah, they were the. Um, I don't know what I said it. I don't <laughs> anymore. But what I, what it is is the, the payments were one hundred ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents each. So they're all a penny shy of two hundred dollars, and um, apparently the same pattern emerged in filings by George Santos, and they both uh, both of their congressional campaigns had the same treasurer, Nancy Marks. So. Um, She's a Long Island-based consultant, and she's now in the spotlight as uh, Santos faces multiple investigations over his finances and repeated lies about his resume and biography. Uh, her company was paid by Santos's campaign for both accounting and fundraising services. The FEC reports uh, Marx filed on behalf of Santos's campaign are the subject of complaints centered on allegations that records were falsified in violation of federal law. Complaints with the FEC have questioned whether he is a true source of more than 700,000 in loans he said he made to his 2022 campaign. Uh, Federal investigators are examining his finances, including uh, uh, allegations that Santos took $3,000 from a veteran's dying dogs GoFundMe campaign which I don't think we even mentioned on the podcast yet. Um, The $199.99 payments ranged from uh, seven disbursements at Il Baco Ristorante in Little Neck, New York, for food and beverages. Ever been, Jess? I haven't been to Little Neck. I have not been to that restaurant. (laughs) Okay. Um, And that includes twice in a single day on November 30th, 2021. Um, Also includes hotel accommodations at the W South Beach Hotel um, in October of 2021 at a time when the lowest price room typically would have cost more than $700, according to the complaint. Um, hundreds of these other payments of this amount um, went to anonymous recipients um, and appeared in a report filed by Santos's campaign covering the first three months of 2022. The questionable disbursements to anonymous vendors first reported by the Washington Post were removed in subsequent filings. In 2020, they raised 260,000 for a recount committee. This was when he lost the election. Um, they raised 260K for a recount committee that paid consultants and staffers, but there was never a recount. And an FEC complaint says, 
that it was an attempt to skirt campaign contribution limits. The complaint also notes other suspicious expenses. Huh? So the 2020 election, while they're like, strictly speaking, wasn't a complete recount, there was some form of a recount in 2020 because in the 2020 election, that was COVID year. That was the year where the governor's executive order made it significantly easier for people to vote by absentee ballot. And there were several North Shore Long Island races, including Santos versus Swazi, that on the night of the election, Santos was winning. And it was the absentee count that put Swazi over the edge. So while it wasn't a formal, full recount, and it didn't, I don't think it ended up being in a margin where that would have been possible, um, there was in absentee count that does typically in the past in New York prior to the 2022 election require like attorneys and volunteers to be present to witness. I mean, it's not a, it's not a literal requirement, but the campaigns do it for good measure. Right. So while that is like technically accurate, it's not really accurate. Okay. Well, I mean, either way, if I had to put my money on it, there was some fraud going on. <laughs> Probably. But you know what? I mean, honestly, those recounts do end up costing money because you have to pay attorneys to go there. And while most of the time people will get volunteers to show up at the Board of Elections to watch the recount, in addition to like a couple of attorneys, you do need volunteers. I imagine that Santos doesn't have any real supporters and probably had to pay people to go. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. Um Mother Jones uh, recently reported that more than a dozen donations to Santos's 2020 campaign appeared linked to donors who do not uh, exist or reside at the addresses listed in the campaign's reports. Um, and it is against the law to make a donation in the name of another person or to file false reports with the federal government. Um, one case, someone named Steven Berger is listed as donating 2,500 bucks to Santos from an address on Brant Road in Brawley, California. And uh, William Brant, the rancher who owns the property and has lived at the address for four decades, told CNN no one with that name has ever lived at that address. And he said that he himself had never donated to Santos. So I think there's enough smoke here that there is some... Uh, campaign finance violation fire going on um they 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 got their girl nancy marks to handle their campaign funds and this is how she operates um there was in the cnn article there was something about um when editor whenever somebody would propose like a workaround to contribute more than they were allowed to george would say i don't want to hear it talk to nancy so uh think guess her her uh her work history her uh her reputation not her reputation but you know just her mode of business seems to maybe have caught up to her she tried resigning um from whatever post she was at but uh it's not doesn't look like it's going to save her from uh the investigations and accountability the way that uh the chief judge of New York resigned during her ethics investigation and seems to have avoided any uh, accountability on her end. But uh, you know, we'll try to follow the story, see where it goes. And hopefully one of the places it goes is George Santos getting kicked out of Congress. I really find it shocking and amazing how many people specifically on the North shore of Long Island are under investigation for campaign finance issues. I really just like, it baffles me how dumb people are. How many of them um, are in the Nancy Marks uh, network? Um, not all of them. And again, this is like problematic. Like, I really just don't understand what the deal is. I don't get it. There's another candidate from that election this year. So he was one of the Democratic nominees who didn't make it through the primary, who's under investigation right now for accepting a $50,000 payment 
for his university tuition from someone and they're calling it an illegal campaign contribution because I believe then he took his own private money and put it into his campaign. So like he's under investigation right now. So it's just really amazing to me how many people are just doing dumb ass shit around campaign finance and thinking they're going to get away with it. Not a great era for New York politics. It's really not. I mean, but what has been a great era for New York politics and like, I don't, you know, and this is why I'm so intrigued by like the prospect of having a new form of campaign finance. Like if we had some kind of voucher program, like would this still be a problem? But like also just the idea that there are so many wealth, like independently wealthy and well-connected people running for office. I mean, I don't think that your tax bracket in any direction should bar you from running for office. But I also just think that like people need to get their shit together, like, and stop like trying to screw the system. Like you're not going to get away with it. Whether you get caught now or later, you're going to get caught. Ideally. Yeah. And, uh, hopefully everybody will, uh, get caught. What, uh, listening to next week's, uh, edition of the podcast when Martina's back with another interview. Um, but for now, thank you for listening this week uh, to Social Action Briefing. Thanks, as always, to Aridian Falcone for inspiring the podcast and for our logo. And uh, to my friend, the award-winning, Grammy award-winning, mm-hmm. not this year, but a previous, I don't think this year, but a previous year, uh, Vinny <laughs> Alfano. Uh, of Anonymous Hair Salon in Soho. Thank you for the theme song. And uh, we'll see everybody next time.